as good as sing Christmas songs, as worship songs as they are intended to be as we glorify the birth, the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You might get some better preaching out of me in the next uh, few weeks to come because Rosie is finally sleeping through the night. And you can say amen to that. We can get some cheers in the audience. I'm happy about it. I am happy. Don't underestimate the power of a good night's sleep, my friends. If you want to serve the Lord well, do what you got to do to try to get some good rest every once in a while because human bodies are, are uh, they need that rest. We are, we are not all powerful like our Lord God is. By the way, you just sang a second ago that the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Oh, Jesus made some crying noises, all right? He was authentically human. We're talking about real babies here. Real babies cry, so don't, don't get that all twisted up in your head. Uh, Jesus was and every way that we are human, except that he did not sin. Praise the Lord. He never broke the Lord's command. He did nothing wicked and evil. And, uh, and so uh, don't think that Jesus didn't cry when he was in his little manger. Uh, we have Bibles for you. If you'd like a Bible, raise your hand. We would bring one to your seat so that you can have the Word of God, his faithful testimony with you as we study together. We are in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be wrapping up this chapter and dipping into the very beginning of uh, Galatians chapter 5 today, just the first verse because it is relevant to what we are learning. So the note sheets and pencils as well are there for your enrichment if you like them and want to use them. If you benefit from them, then use that. If they are a distraction to you, then just ignore them. Um, You don't don't have to fill out those note sheets. You don't get any extra credit at the end for having them all right. Although I I bet you we'd probably get some people rejoicing if I did have some kind of a point system for the note sheets. Sometimes a lot of people chase me down in the parking lot. But what about point number three? And, you know, it's it's, hopefully they'll be helpful for you. But... uh, if they're not, then just ignore them. Well, we, uh, we are teaching verse by verse through the book of Galatians, this wonderful short letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in the region called Galatia. And there are advantages to preaching verse by verse through texts. You know, many uh, preachers will pr- approach a book of the Bible thematically. They'll, they'll pick the most well-known verses or the big core ideas, and they'll preach through the few things that they feel are most impactful in a book, but they'll, they'll glance over some of the things that are more difficult to teach through. And I think that if we were doing it that way, if we were thematic in our approach to the Scripture, we might not even tackle the Scriptures that we're dealing with today, which would be a real shame, because I, I believe that every bit of what God has written to us is beneficial to us. All of it has meaning and purpose. It is all 100% inspired. It is the words of Jesus Christ. And so we want want to look through all of it and be faithful stewards of it. And so today we're going to really see what a blessing it is to watch Paul go back into the Old Testament and to draw from a text there some of the history of Israel uh, to strengthen his position on justification by faith alone rather than justification by works. So if you've got your scripture and you've got them open to Galatians chapter 4, We're going to read a rather large section today. We're going to be um, tackling verses 21 through 31 of chapter 4, and then we're going to also read the first chapter, or the first verse of the next chapter. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. 
But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time, that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Would you take just a moment and bow your heads with me as we ask our God to give us eyes to see clearly what He has in store for us in Scripture. God, we thank You for the full revelation of Your your given Word. We thank You for inspiring it and for blessing it with protection over the ages so that we can have a reliable text today that we might study together and benefit from. I pray, God, that we would be humble in its reception. I pray that we would trust that it is going to do us good today. I ask that you would take away confusion and help us to understand it for what it is, Lord God. Guard our hearts from false teaching and false understanding. We praise you, God, for the many ways that your truth can impact us and affect our not only our behavior, but our very being. Help us to love you more from what we are learning today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We've spoken the last two weeks about the pastoral heart of Paul and about how he deeply cared for the Galatians as if they were his spiritual children. There's a great threat to their well-being. False teachers have tried to convince these Galatian believers to accept the full restrictions of the Old Testament law in order to be saved. They affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. They, they say that, yes, He is our King. But they say, if you want to be redeemed, if you want a place in heaven, you also must be circumcised. You must follow the festival days of the Old Testament Scripture. You've got to, in all ways and purposes, become Jewish as well as trust in Jesus Christ. To affirm that, to buy into that philosophy, that gospel that was not really the gospel, would be a serious error because it makes salvation into something that man must accomplish rather than glorifying God for accomplishing what we could not accomplish. Paul is concerned. But there is evidence here in verse 21 that the Galatians are not a lost cause. He's not preaching to a people who have defiled their hearts and fallen away. The fact that Paul refers to the Galatians here as you who desire to be under the law indicates that though they were considering these false teachers, their false doctrines were tempting to them. They were, they were almost believing in it. They had not yet totally bought into the lie. So Paul is trying diligently to confront his, these teachers so that his friends in Galatia will not be dissuaded, so they will not embrace this false gospel and have it do them harm. I might re- remind you that these Galatian believers are by and large Gentiles. They were mostly people who came from a pagan background where Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles would go into an area like this. They would first go into the synagogue and and talk to their brothers of Israel, but most of them would reject them. A few Jewish people would receive Christ and be saved, 
But then when the Jewish believers in the synagogue had rejected them, they would go to the Gentiles and appeal to those people who had no background with Yahweh. And miraculously, the Holy Spirit caused fruit to spring from that. And people who came from pagan backgrounds, from worshiping many other foreign false gods, repented, trusted in the Lord God, and Jesus became their Savior as well. Paul speaks to these converted Gentiles about Abraham in this passage. He quotes the Old Testament and he does it as if they should have some kind of knowledge of it. And this is proof that when when, uh, Paul and Barnabas and the others would go from city to city, they would not just preach Jesus and New Testament ideas, but they would show how all of that was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They would teach how the coming of Christ, his, his preaching, his obedience was rooted in the law and that his life was actually the fulfillment of that law. So he not only taught Jesus, but he taught Jesus from the Old Testament text. Paul didn't have a New Testament to work with, by the way. When he talks about Scripture, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Pentateuch. He's talking about the prophets. He's talking about the Psalms. He's talking about the wisdom literature. He's talking about what is contained in in the books of the Old Testament. Later on, the, the New Testament would be formed and canonized, and Paul would be a part of writing that. But when he set these churches up, he was teaching them about Abraham. He was teaching them about the things of the Old Testament. So it shouldn't be absolutely foreign to them. Paul was determined to protect the freedom of those who had once been slaves. Slaves to sin. But had been released from that slavery through the grace of Jesus Christ. Think back to chapter uh, chapter 3 of Galatians where the Apostle Paul wrote, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Which coincides with what has been taught throughout the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 27.26 that says, Cursed be anyone who does not conform, uh, confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people say, Amen. And so here we have... We have a a very important, important fork in the road where these Galatians can go one direction or another and Paul is urging them to take the right path. He tells the Galatians that a careful examination of the law itself will show why you ought not to seek to live under that law. He's saying, haven't you read the law? Haven't you paid attention to the things that are taught in the Old Testament Scripture? If you pay attention to them, you'll see the evidence that our salvation must come through grace. And so to prove that, Paul provides a vivid illustration from that old covenant. He turns our attention back to Genesis. And this passage of Scripture that we have here in Galatians can be broken down into three parts. Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 23 gives us the historical situation, outlines what occurred between Sarah and Abraham and Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, Then in verses 24 through 27, we see the allegorical interpretation. Paul begins to make sense of that story in light of how it speaks to the New Testament condition of salvation. And then in verses 28 of Galatians through to the first verse of chapter 5, we see the practical application. We learn how this truth should affect the way that we live in obedience to the Lord God. So let us begin by considering the historical situation that Paul refers to. By Genesis 16, and if you can turn there if you'd like to, we're going to go back and look at some verses in the 16th chapter of Genesis. By here, God has made a promise to Abraham. He's made a promise to Sarah that their offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the beach, 
and that through them every nation of the world would be truly blessed. Now this is of course a a very daring promise for God to make because Abraham was 86 when he made this promise. Sarah was 10 years younger. She was a spring chicken at 76. So that was already well past the age of childbearing. In order for God's promise to be kept, the only way for that to happen, something miraculous is going to have to occur. God's going to have to do something out of the ordinary because the scripture tells us Sarah was well past the time of women, which means she was not able to conceive anymore. The fact that she had no children of her own means that she probably never was able to conceive. So the age really isn't a factor. She was, she was barren the whole way through their marriage. In the Christmas story, which is in a, a view for us during this holiday season, Mary, a young Jewish virgin, learned that as an unwed young girl, she would miraculously conceive, that she would bear a special child. Now that was baffling to her because she had never been with a man. She was not yet married. Thankfully for Mary, the evidence that it had come to pass wasn't something she had to wait very long for. As soon as that angel came and proclaimed these things to her, she began to, to experience the changes that the female body goes through when one becomes pregnant. The evidence was before her very eyes. Abram and Sarah did not get that advantage. A promise is made, but that promise is not immediately fulfilled. How many of you have, have prayed and then had to wait a long time for God to answer a prayer? Such is the case with Sarah and Abraham because this promise is given, it is declared to them. There must have been a sense of urgency to them. They could not imagine raising a child of their own at ages 86 and 76, but God does not give them that child immediately. Days go by, months Years pass, and still no child of promise. Time has a way of wearing down our faith, doesn't it? You have probably asked and asked and asked again and again for God to do something in your life, and then started to struggle with your relationship with the Lord because He did not answer the prayer the way you thought He would. Or He doesn't seem to answer it at all, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Will God fulfill His promise? Maybe he didn't mean it literally, these promises that he's given in Scripture. Maybe he's waiting for me to act. And so all these thoughts, I'm sure, are rushing through the mind of Sarah, through the mind of Abraham, as they wait. Though Abram and Sarah were faithful to God, they were human beings as well. It was difficult for them to see how God would make his promises come to pass, at least in a conventional way. And so after waiting for some years for the Lord to act and hearing no evidence that it was going to come to pass. Sarah's heartache at waiting a lifetime to conceive caused her to take matters into her own hands. And so Genesis chapter 16, verses 2 through 5. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. These are drastic measures. And I think that as you hear, just imagine the way it must have felt for Sarah to say these things to her husband of so many years. She is ashamed because as a Hebrew woman, her greatest joy would have been con to conceive a child and to, to bring a little baby into this world and to raise that child up in the ways of, of the Lord and to carry on the family name through those children. 
That would have been a joy to her, a crown of blessing. And yet for all her life, she has not experienced that kind of joy. Her sisters have all born children. Her neighbors have all born children. And yet she has been alone. Yes, she had a husband, but she had no little ones to care after. So this heartbreak that continues on is only amplified when a promise comes that through her and through Abram, a bloodline would be formed. And then year after year, no sign of a child. And so she takes drastic measures. You might know that Abram is not the one who asks to father a child by the handmaiden. He would not have survived probably if he would have brought this subject up to his wife. She is the one who brings this up. Her heartache is incredible. The course of action is suggested by Sarai, and so you must see how desperate she is that she would share her husband of so many years with a younger woman. There was great desire on her part to provide that male heir and to fulfill the promises of God. And that desire was greater than her fear of Abraham favoring Hagar, this handmaiden. The Bible is a historical document. And so as we read stories like this, it it can sometimes be shocking to those who are not familiar with the biblical text. We've got to remember that not everything that Abraham or any of God's servants did, not all of it was right. Not all of it was holy. Just because Abram was a man of faith does not mean he didn't make mistakes. Didn't mean he didn't act in the flesh at times. The presence of this story in the Bible does not condone or endorse slavery. Hagar was a slave. Slavery was much different than the slavery we uh, are historically used to in America. Slavery was much more humane. It often involved mercy during times of war. It often involved relief for those who had got themselves into terrible debt that they could never get out of. Nevertheless, I don't think the Lord wants us to have slaves or anything of that nature. Don't use the Bible to try to convince me otherwise. The fact that this exists in the Bible is not an endorsement of slavery. It also is not an endorsement of polygamy. We see Abram engaging in an ancient practice of taking more than one wife. That is not the Lord's way of doing things. When he gave Adam a a wife in the garden, he gave him one wife. And a man and a woman are to become one flesh together. But nevertheless, these mistakes, though they are not right, are a part of the history of Israel. And so we cannot go back and rewrite them. We cannot amend them. We must simply learn from them. We could predict, I think, that answering a lack of faith in the heart by breaking God's laws would not result in greater peace, but rather in further heartbreak. And that is exactly what happens for Sarah and Abram. Verse 3 of Genesis 16 goes on to say, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. Do you see what's happening here? Hagar is, is now not just a servant to Sarah, she is a rival. So she is upset that she has to share her husband Abraham with this woman, even though this woman has been along a lot longer than she has. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you, Abram. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. What a mess our short faith can produce. This desperate act creates division in their home and tension between Abram, Sarah, and God. 
Rather than trusting in the promise, Abram has tried to compensate for his short faith by taking matters into his own hands. And now a son is in his home, a boy by the name of Ishmael. But it is not the son that God promised to provide. He didn't wait for the right son. He tried to push forward the timetable of God. The birth of every baby is, of course, a miracle, isn't it? And if you've ever been present in a, in a delivery room, if you ever held a tiny six-pound baby in your hands, you know how miraculous it is that something so small and vulnerable could live and thrive. And so every child is a miracle of the Lord. But Ishmael was not conceived under supernatural means. He came the regular way. His mother, Hagar, was younger. She was of childbearing age. And so when Abram lied with her, she conceived in the conventional manner. The conception and birth of Ishmael was not an act of divine God so much it was an act of doubtful man. Right away, Sarah begins to see that she had taken, made the wrong decision. She envies Hagar's ability to conceive. She deals harshly with Hagar, her handmaiden. Hagar has contempt for Sarah and looks at her with disgust. They are now rivals and they are battling for the affections of their husband. We have a house divided. Do not forget that the promise that God made to Abram was not just a promise to Abram. It was also a promise to Sarah. So by introducing Hagar into this equation, in some ways they have tried to bypass Sarah. But God has other means in mind. Even their disobedience to him could not make God stop from keeping his promise. Time continues to pass. And though the odds are getting longer and longer... God does fulfill His promise to Sarah and Abram. Thirteen years after Ishmael was born, God makes Sarah become pregnant. So for thirteen years, she had to endure the scorn of knowing she could not bear a child on her own. But God was faithful to them. And in His timing, He brought the Son of Promise. We're going to skip to Genesis chapter 21 here. Verses 1 through 3 describe this amazing provision. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. We sometimes fail to understand that God is not bound by time the way that we are bound by time. His timing is always perfect. And though it might cause us anxiety to wait, we often think we have a better timetable than God does. God is never late. He is never inaccurate in when He causes things to come to pass. We're going to look at that in more depth uh, next Sunday as we prepare for Christmas and talk about the perfect timing of Jesus' advent. The New Testament shows us that God gave faith enough to Sarah. Even though she stumbled, even though she was weak at times, she had enough faith to continue on in the promise that God had made to them. And eventually God fulfills that promise in their lives. The New Testament confirms that just because Sarah and Abram had made a mistake in offering up Hagar as a substitute, that didn't mean that they were faithless. Hebrews 11.11 says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. 
I think one of the most serious threats to us when we think about this false gospel of works is that we sometimes get into this mindset that if I'm truly saved, then I should be a perfect man. I should be a perfect woman. I should be able to obey in every step of my life. But here we see an example of someone in Sarah who struggled, who was weak at times, who turned her face away from the Lord and then turned it back in repentance. Just because she stumbled and fell did not mean that God would not fulfill His promise in her. So let us not fall into this false doctrine of legalism that thinks that if we have made a mistake, that means that God doesn't love us or we're not truly a people of God. But instead, let us rejoice in the fact that God has called imperfect people to Himself, not so that they could display their perfections, but so that He might sanctify and purify them. Isaac is conceived with the help of mighty God, and then two distinct family lines are forged. On the one side, we have Ishmael, the son of the slave, who is associated with Mount Sinai. Why does he associate Hagar with Mount Sinai? Because Mount Sinai is where the law comes from. Mount Sinai is where the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, is delivered to Israel. This law which would prove to them how far short they fall of holiness. It would prove to them that they cannot, by their own means, approach God. So think of that. Keep that in mind, that Hagar is connected symbolically with this mountain of Sinai. Isaac, on the other hand, represents a different bloodline. He is the son of promise. It is interesting to consider that historians acknowledge the roots of the Middle Eastern conflicts that we hear so much about in our news. We, we think about places like, uh, like uh, Iraq and Iran and Egypt, and, and we think about uh, Israel, of course, and we think about all the fighting and all the conflict that goes on in that area of the world. And it can often be traced back to this very family scandal. Is Ishmael the true firstborn and therefore the heir to the land of promise, the heir to Jerusalem and the Holy Land? Or is Isaac the real firstborn according to God's promises? In one sense, the battle over possession of the Holy Land and Jerusalem in particular is traced directly back to an inheritance dispute over who is the firstborn of Abram the rightful heir to the promised inheritance. Those who consider themselves of Arabian descent draw their lineage back to Ishmael. They believe that he is their, their, uh, their genetic father. And they believe that Ishmael deserves the rights to the Holy Land because he was the first physical born of Abraham. Now this is not the sum total of the conflicts that happen in the Middle East, nor is it a blanket condemnation of Arabian people who also need the gospel who also need to be shown the truth so that they can repent and become a part of the promised people of God. But it is interesting to see the impact of trying to rewrite God's plan and how a simple sin can have such ramifications through history to those who descend from those who sinned. So this is the historical material that Paul is working with, friends. But in order to show how it applies to the defense of true salvation, salvation by grace... Paul has to render an allegorical interpretation. So we move into the second phase of our understanding of these passages here today. When we desire to seek the, the Word of God and understand it, we need to be careful with allegory. Allegory is interpreting things through a, a symbolic, metaphorical lens. The undisciplined student of the Bible may use allegory to make the Word of God say something that it was never intending to say. 
They might do that innocently without understanding that, just being creative and, and thoughtful, or sometimes they do it intentionally to inject ideas into the text. Let me show you some examples of this. There was a, a church father named Origen, and he wrote a lot about the early church a couple hundred years after its inception. And he has a, a, a document that we have preserved over time where he goes through and he's explaining the Good Samaritan parable, which was, of course, shared to us through Jesus Christ. You're familiar with this parable. Briefly, you have a man who is traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. And on the way to Jerusalem, he is beset by vicious robbers who beat him severely, steal everything that he has, including the clothes on his back, and leave him naked and bloody in a ditch on the side of the road. They leave him to die, and several people pass by, each one of them reacting to this body in an interesting way. The first person to pass by is a priest. You might expect a man of God to be loving and compassionate and concerned for the well-being of this man, but instead that priest sees him, recognizes that there's a threat about, and rather than help him, he preserves himself by moving to the other side of the road and continuing on to Jerusalem. The second person who comes by is a, a Levite, also one who is uh, called to serve in the house of God, to be involved with worship. You would think this man who has holiness on the mind and heart would see a, a poor person beset by robbers and do something about it, but no, he too passes by without so much as a prayer for the man. And the third person who uh, enters the story is the least likely you'd expect to help this Jewish victim, a Samaritan man. Samaritans being ethnic rivals to the Jew happens upon his broken body, and he stops. Though there is racial tension between his people and the people of the man who has been assaulted and left for dead, he stops, and he cares for him. He loves him. He bandages his wounds. He tends to his needs. He puts him on his own donkey and walks the rest of the way into town where he finds a place that man can rest. He pays the innkeeper to give him a safe bed, he says, I will be back town, uh, through town in a few days, and if this man needs more, keep Tavit, I will pay his cost. He is sure that the man would have a chance to survive. And so Origen, here's this parable of Jesus, and he says, now here, you might see on the surface uh, some pretty obvious lessons, but let me give you the spiritual interpretation. The man who is robbed is not just a man, it is in fact Adam. The first man who was robbed of his holiness by the serpent. Jerusalem is paradise. He was headed to paradise, but he stopped on his way, and he was beaten senseless. He incurred terrible wrath. The priest who passes him up is, in fact, the law of the Old Testament. And then the Levites who pass him up, the Levite is the prophets of the Old Testament. The Samaritan, of course, is Jesus Christ. He comes and offers grace to this man and takes care of his needs. He saves him from certain death. The donkey is Christ's physical body, which bears the burden of the wounded man. You see how detailed he's getting? Where are all these ideas coming from, by the way? Are they coming from Scripture? Is Origen finding this in some other text that Jesus taught it in? No. Origen is simply being creative and applying his, his thoughts of the gospel to this text. Unfortunately, they aren't inherent in the text, at least not to the degree that he says they are. See, he doesn't mean any harm by it, but he's trying to make a story that was about grace be about 
the whole gospel in every detail. So he goes on and says that the inn is like the church of God, which nurses those who are befallen by sin back to health and points them to the Lord. And the Samaritan's promise to return is like the promise of the second coming of Jesus. Now that is, of course, very creative, and it seems like there are some parallels there. But unless the Bible seems to be explicitly allegorical, then we shouldn't try to put allegory upon it. When Jesus says that I am the vine and you are the branches, it is quite clear that Jesus is not describing himself as a vegetable. He is the, bran- he is the vine of the branches in the sense that he provides nutrients to the branches, in the sense that he physically supports them, in the sense that if they stay connected to him, they can bear great fruit. And of course, the fruit we're talking about is not mangoes and papayas. The fruit we're talking about is holiness. So God is using obviously symbolic languages to get a point across to the people. But there are others who would like to take the word of God and say that everything in it is a symbol. And by doing so, they add a level of mystery to the text that can't be discerned. And that is not what God wants us to do when we approach the scripture. So there are times when it's appropriate to look at the word of God allegorically. When, there is, when it is not time, we should be as literal as we can with the text. Here is a time when God permits us to look at the text allegorically. He has given Paul special insight into this. This is inspired scripture. And so we need to see that by divine revelation, there are parallels here to historical events and the conflict that the Galatians were engaged in. Sarah, Hagar, and their offspring are presented as an illustration of the two views of salvation that the Galatians must now choose from. They presented, they've been presented Paul's view of salvation, salvation by faith alone, in the grace of Jesus Christ alone. But they've also been presented this alternative, which is believe in Jesus, but then come underneath the law and work your way to heaven. So here we have very many parallels, and each of these things is laid out in a, in a little chart I made in your notes. I hope that'll be helpful for you as you visualize what's going on here. First, we see two mothers. Hagar, the slave woman who was able to naturally bear children, is one of the mothers. The other mother is Sarah, Abram's true wife who endured, endured a barren womb for almost 90 years. Do you recall how Paul has shown that all who trust in Jesus have been adopted into God's family and it belong to him now. We can now call out to him, Abba, Father. We can refer to him as our daddy because of the identity we have in him. There was much pride in the false teachers who had come to Galatia and were teaching this, this doctrine of works. They believed that as genetic Israel, they called Abraham their true father. They believed that that genetic connection was somehow a sign of dignity and honor for them, that they belonged to God. But Paul further challenges that mentality here. It's not enough to say that Abraham is your father. Who is your mother, so to speak? Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. Which of these two mothers better represents the way that you approach your salvation? Because by these two different women, we have two different paths represented, two different ways of life that the human heart can choose to follow. These two mothers had two sons. The first is Ishmael. Verse 23 tells us he was born according to the flesh, meaning by earthly means, the way that normal children are born. That means that he was born of the will and the effort of man. Abram and Sarah couldn't see how God would possibly solve their issue of infertility, and so they forced the issue themselves and tried to solve the problem 
through human devices. But there is a second son, and his name is Isaac. He is not born of the flesh so much as he is born of the promise. Born of the supernatural intervention and blessing of God. Each of these two sons and the way by which Abraham obtained them correspond to two different covenants. By Paul's interpretation, Hagar the Ishmael, and Ishmael, her son, represent the covenant of works by which man tries to, through his own efforts, please the Lord God and prove to him that he deserves to be near him in heaven. This is essentially the salvation that the false teachers were trying to convince the Galatians to buy into. You need forgiveness of sin, but you also need to follow all of the rules and the regulations that are found in the Old Testament, which included circumcision, which included festival days, which included sacrifices, and on and on, dietary restrictions. This attitude was the attitude of those Judaizers who were preaching in the Galatian churches. And this was vastly different than the covenant of grace, which is represented in Sarah and her son Isaac by which man trusts in God's generosity to save and to redeem his people into his own family. In order to be saved the way that Sarah represents, we must wait on the Lord. We don't have any power to get where we need to be. We must trust that God is going to do it. And so Isaac and Sarah represent the covenant of grace, simply letting the Lord be our Savior, receiving the free gift of faith that he wants to give to us. Depending on which covenant you trust in, each person will belong to one of two figurative cities. The present physical city of Jerusalem, which was hindered by the bondage of the law, which was politically under the control of the Romans and possessed by that empire and had been for generations, corresponds to Hagar. She is like the Jerusalem that the Israelites in Jesus' day knew. It wasn't free. It was under foreign rule. Because of disobedience to God's covenant years and years before. God had allowed the Babylonian Empire to come in and defeat Jerusalem. Those who lived there were exiled out of it. And for generation after generation, different countries had ruled Jerusalem, but it had not belonged to Israel as had initially been intended. But there is a better Jerusalem, a Jerusalem which is above also in some ways present, though not in the same physical sense. This Jerusalem corresponds to Sarah and the bloodline achieved by God through the birth of her special son, Isaac. Those who trust in the Lord God to provide their identity for them have a citizenship in this holy Jerusalem, this spiritual Jerusalem that will endure forever, a, a Jerusalem that is secure from attack, a Jerusalem that will never be ruled by the forces of this world. So we have two paths each of which illustrates an approach of the heart, a state of the mind, two different solutions to the problems that afflict man. But this is a more than an intellectual exercise. So we've seen the historical story. We've seen the allegorical interpretation, but we must also be careful that we consider how we as the church and how the Galatians as a church in the time of Paul needed to respond to this. We must move to the practical application of the text. As we reflect on the imperfect path to faith that Abram and Sarah took, we need to consider the ways that Paul wanted this story to impact his Galatian brothers and sisters and how it can impact us as well. So first, we want to identify and resist the urge to doubt the promises of God. As we read this story, we see the actions of Sarah 
and the actions of Abram, mistakes that we could very well have made in some way, shape, or form in our own life. Let us determine in our hearts to resist the urge to doubt the promises of our holy God. The false teachers in Galatia were sowing the seeds of doubt. They were trying to cause the people of Galatia to doubt that faith in Jesus Christ alone was enough to save them, that the grace of our Lord would redeem them and make them pure and holy. To be clear, God has not promised to give us everything we want, has He? So we must be cautious not to put uh, promises onto God that He has not made to us. But when we think of the sure things of the Lord, we remember that the Scripture is full of wonderful and sure promises that are to be ours one day. We are promised that if we trust in Jesus Christ, that our sin will be forgiven. If we come before Him with a humble heart and say, God, I am a sinner. And God, no matter how hard I have tried, I cannot erase this sinfulness. I want to be near to you, but there is a great gap between us, and I cannot fill that gap. Please save me through your Son, Jesus Christ. Those who come humbly before Him surely will be saved. When you call on the name of the Lord, you will belong to Him. That is a promise from God. He promises also that those who become His will stay His, that we will never leave Him or forsake Him that no one can snatch us off out of our Father's hands. We belong to the Lord God eternally because our sonship was won by His effort, not by our own. It cannot be spoiled by a lack of faith. It cannot be spoiled by, by a lack of obedience because God is the one who provides faith for us. And though we stumble, our atonement covers even our future sins. This is a promise to us. We know that if we sin and we confess that to the Lord, and He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we don't have to look at every mistake that we make and think, maybe I have defiled my walk with the Lord. Maybe I don't belong to Him anymore. There are greater promises in that in Scripture that we need to hang on to and to not let our hearts doubt. We need to hold fast to the fact that He will allow us not to be tempted beyond what we can bear. You know, the scripture doesn't say that he won't make us go through more than we can handle. It says that we won't be tempted beyond what we can bear. And that in all ways he will give us an avenue for escape. That means that if there is a temptation in our lives, we must trust and believe that he can overcome it. And he will if we trust in him. And we have every reason to believe that Jesus didn't just return once. He's going to return again. He's coming back for his church. We often don't think of that return, do we? But I often, during Christmas time, when I start thinking about the fact that Jesus came that first time, I remember that the Israelites had been waiting for hundreds of years for it to happen. And I don't doubt that some of them thought, maybe it never will. Maybe, this was, maybe we took this the wrong way. Maybe all these scriptures that we've seen pointing towards Messiah, maybe he meant it in, in a symbolic way. Maybe I, maybe I misinterpreted it. But Jesus came. Jesus came and he lived that perfect life that we could not live. He was triumphant over sin. And then when he took the burden of sin on his shoulders, he was triumphant over the death that he suffered on behalf of his saints. So Jesus did what many had forgotten he was going to do. But many had kind of counted out. Let us remember that he's going to come again one day. And though it has been a long time since he made that promise, it will surely happen when the time is right. Let us never doubt the sure promises of God, friends. 
but let us cling to them and be encouraged by them and recognize that this God who has made these promises is not a God who goes back on what he says. Secondly, as we hear this story and we learn from the example of the Galatians, we are given a choice. All of us have a choice. And with that choice, let us be determined not to trade the magnificent promises of a glorious and miraculous God for the temporal blessings of man-made covenants that don't have any power to save us. We spoke last week uh, to some degree about how the, the covenant of works is appealing to man because it puts us in the driver's seat, or it seems to. It gives us the, the power to command our destiny. You want blessing from God? Just do good things, and he'll have to bless you back. So there is a temptation there for us to grab onto these temporal ideas when in reality God has given us something much greater. Let us not trade the beauty of grace salvation for the broken model of work salvation that has proven faulty over every iteration throughout time. No matter which religious system is trying to convince you you can get to heaven by your deeds, not one of them can give you the hope that Christ can give you. So in view of the mistakes that Sarah and Abraham made, in view of the mistakes that the Galatians were on the cusp of making, let us determine not to allow our lack of faith to cause us to align ourselves with the decisions and conditions of those who are bound in this slavery to their own deeds. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom, Christ, has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. That verse really fits with what we're learning here at the end of chapter 4, that we are to stand firm in this freedom that God has won, from us, uh, won for us. A freedom from slavery, a freedom from obligation to earn for ourselves what we could never earn. But it is so tempting at times to wrestle that responsibility away from God and to, in our pride, think that we can determine for ourselves what is best for us. All that He has ordained for us, friends, is good. Let us rest in it. Let us enjoy what God has ordained. Wait on the Lord. Be grateful for what He has decided to give, even if He seems to be taking a long time to answer you. There is freedom in letting your redemption belong to your King. Thirdly, as we respond to this text, we would do well to rejoice in the freedom that we've experienced with the victory that we've won over sin through Jesus Christ and the work that Christ performed on the cross for us. Look again at verse 27 in Galatians chapter 4. It says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the child of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What Paul is doing here is quoting a verse from Isaiah 54.1. And that verse was actually a direct reference to Jerusalem. It wasn't talking particularly about Sarah, but it applies because Sarah has been equated with the new Jerusalem in, in Paul's text. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. At the time that Isaiah is writing that text, Jerusalem was quite bare. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They had laid waste to it. The Israelites had struggled hard against them. They wanted to keep their holy city of David. And because they would not accept the punishment of God, the Babylonian army was allowed to come in and lay waste to Jerusalem. The people who lived there before were exiled. They were scattered. So the children of, of Israel were no longer in Jerusalem. They weren't living there anymore. And so that city had become like a barren woman. But Isaiah wants the people to remember the promises of God. And so he says, do not 
lament, but instead rejoice. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. God did not forget Ishmael. And in fact, he gave a blessing to Ishmael that he would be the father of many great nations as well. He gave him 12 sons. And uh, most, like I mentioned before, many of the Arabic nations tie their lineage back to Ishmael. But the true promise that we are to celebrate is the promise that was given to Isaac. The promise that came through a woman who could not conceive on her own, that only conceived through the power and intervention of holy God. The Jerusalem that corresponds to Sarah is not just a Jerusalem to come, by the way. Notice that it says there is a present Jerusalem, but then it doesn't say the Jerusalem to come. It says the Jerusalem above, meaning that the Jerusalem that Sarah represents as a Jerusalem that we experience to some degree now. It is being formed for us. It is being prepared for us in heaven so that when our time here on earth is done and all sin is punished once and for all, we might enter into a fellowship with God and live in that holy city with Him. Read the last three chapters of, uh, of the book of Revelation if you want more information on that Jerusalem to come. There is a joy to be experienced for those who were desolate and barren, those who tried so hard to save themselves and were so frustrated by it, but have now tasted of the spiritual vitality that can come when God supernaturally makes us what we can't make ourselves to be. Rejoice. But there's one final thing, and I didn't write this in your notes, but you might want to write it down. Rejoice, but also prepare yourself. Prepare yourself because it is given to the offspring of the free woman not only to experience blessing, but to suffer persecution at the hands of the slave woman's offspring. The promises that God gave to Sarah and Abraham were great, but he didn't tell them that their lives would be easy and smooth sailing. He didn't say that they would never experience any hiccups or hardships. So in verse 29 it says, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Who is he talking about right there? He's talking about how 13-year-old Ishmael, when he saw this new baby born, mistreated Isaac. He laughed at him and mocked him because he was threatened by this new baby who was on the scene from a different mother than his own mother. There was enmity between Hagar and Sarah. There was also enmity between Ishmael and this little baby Isaac. Verse 30, But what does the Scripture say? It says, Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Back in that initial story that we read about in Genesis, the great upheaval that happened in the house of Abram and Sarah when Isaac was born caused an insurmountable conflict. And Sarah cried out to her husband, begging that he would solve this problem somehow in some way. And God gave permission to Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away. God had supernatural provision waiting for them. He was not going to allow them to be forgotten forever. But he wanted peace in the house of Abraham and Sarah. And so he allowed that, that false line to be sent away. Freedom is not devoid of responsibility. We have been set free. But let us learn from the example of the Galatians that our freedom is something that we should work to protect. That we should keep our eyes on Christ and trust in Him so that false teachers don't infiltrate what we know to be good and pollute it with distortions of the truth. By holding high the true gospel, by drawing the clear line and saying, not all who say they are of 
of Israel are truly Israel. By challenging those who would call themselves Christian but preach a different gospel, we are protecting the right true gospel that God has given to us. Friends, we are to stand firm against the doctrine that is in the world today that would put your salvation into your own hands. And it is prolific. This is not just something that was battled uh, against in Galatia and then the war was won and we don't have to deal with it anymore. The world is filled with people who would identify themselves as Christians but would tell you that your salvation somehow hinges on your own obedience. This false doctrine reigns today. And if we don't read the scripture and guard our hearts against it, then it can infiltrate our understanding of Christ and steal blessing from us as well. If we come to believe that the things of God come to those who earn them, then we have not really trusted in Jesus Christ after all. So friends, we must be diligent to guard ourselves against false doctrine. And in a world that just says, be friends with everyone and embrace all ideas, there is a way to love someone and clearly disagree with them. And draw a line in the sand and say, what you teach of Christ is not what I teach of Christ, and it is not the true gospel. If we love Jesus, if we cling to Him, then we must be diligent to seek out the truth of the message of salvation, as Paul has been to his Galatian friends. There are those who would say, just do this, just do that, and God will be happy with you, and you will become prosperous. That is a false gospel. That represents the gospel of Ishmael, not the gospel of Isaac. There are those who would say God helps those who help themselves. But the gospel of Isaac says differently. It says we cannot help ourselves. And so God in his grace has come down to help us. He has taken the first step of love. Any requirements that go beyond what God in, intends us to do in the scripture is, is a requirement that God has not intended for us and will steal our freedom and steal our joy. So don't let people add extra things to your requirements. Oh, you have to be walking this way. You have to eat these things. You have to celebrate these holidays in order to be near to the Lord God. That is not what God has done to redeem us. He has fulfilled the law in Christ and then put it all to death on the cross so that we can walk free in Him today. So stand firm, not just in your doctrine, but in your behavior. We often say amen to false doctrine, by doing things that don't fit in with the gospel of Isaac. Sometimes we judgmentally favor the high-performance Christians among us. We give them special status, those preachers that we like the most, or those, those individuals that seem to never make a mistake, and we put them on a pedestal, and we idolize them like we never should. But that's, that's more in line with the gospel of Ishmael that says you must do it yourself. You must work your way into favor. Friends, the opposite is also true. When we look down on our brothers or sisters who are struggling with sin, we should not think less of them, but rather we should come beside them and stand next to them and help them with prayer and with support so that these ones who are also called after the name of God and bear His image might, by God's grace, achieve victory. Not by their own works, but by the mercies of our God. And when we try to earn favor with the Lord, rather than just appreciating the favor that Christ has earned for us, we fall into this pattern of Ishmael, a pattern that only results in death. Friends, I, I know this holiday season, as you go home, you're probably going to be really careful uh, that anytime you leave and go out on your vacations or go out to an event or come to church, that you do something important, don't you? You take one of these, you put it in the door, and you turn it before you leave. 
And then when you get out of your car, you're going to take a little fob, you're going to push a button, and it's going to beep at you, and it's going to warn everybody around, you better not try to get into this machine. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And then you've got a little cell phone, and on your cell phone, you're going to put in a little secret, secret code that nobody else knows. What are you doing when you do all these things? What are you doing when you install that new video surveillance camera or that, that, uh, that front door uh, eye in the sky that you can access from your phone? You're protecting your stuff, aren't you? You're protecting your possessions. And I don't blame you. We live in a place and a time when people steal things. We live in a place and a time where folks don't care about possessions and laws. They want what you have. But friends, if we will go to such great lengths to protect our material goods, which have no eternal value in the eyes of God, should we not go to greater lengths to protect our understanding of the true gospel? Should we not be diligent to understand what it means that Christ took on flesh? That he came and lived a perfect life and in doing so fulfilled the law of Moses, perfected it in himself. Should we not know that when he died on the cross, he was dying because the wages of sin is death? And that apart from a death being given in exchange for sin, there can be no forgiveness. God gave justice to us by letting his son die in our place. Should we not know that that death was not the end of the road, but that on the third day Jesus Christ rose and in doing so became the first of all who would be resurrected and that anyone who would trust in him would also raise again to newness in life. Friends, we guard our hearts and our souls when we seek God in his word. When, when we listen to the scripture and we study it carefully. We are fortifying our faith. We are making strong what the world would make weak through the media and through false teachers. Let us love this book. Let us see it as the great fortification of our soul, that through it we might be strong in walking in the ways of the Lord and would not be easily tempted to buy into a gospel that is only half true. Would you please uh, close with me as we bow in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for being a God of grace. And Lord, we know that threats abound around us, but Father, we are so very grateful that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So I pray, Lord, that this diligent study of Scripture would yield great fruit, Father, that we would feel more secure because we have put our eyes on what you have revealed to us about yourself. You don't want us to come up with creative ideas about who you are, God. You have shown us your face through the Scripture. You have revealed to us your desire for your church. And so, God, I pray that we would not be innovators. I pray that we would not redefine and bring a fresh look to Christianity, but instead we would come to your ancient book and we would see the truth of what you are and what you desire us to be. Let us not be persuaded by the smooth talking of false teachers. Let us not, by the temptations of the flesh, buy into a gospel that would put us in the driver's seat and relegate you to passenger. Instead, God, let us rejoice in the fact that you alone can save us. Let us exalt you because we have no reason to exalt ourselves. Let us obey, not to win your favor, Lord God, but because you have fundamentally changed us and made us a new creation. We don't belong in sin anymore. It's not who we are, God. So let us rejoice in your law. Let us desire to reflect goodness to you by walking in it, but not because it is the thing that secures our place in heaven, but simply because it is who you have made us to be. We are grateful to be called after your name, to be redefined in Christ. 
Let us walk victorious today, knowing that you protect us in your scripture. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our champion. Amen.